Welcome to the Wealth Radar podcast, where we scan the landscape and navigate the noise of investing in personal wealth. I'm Paul Fowler, and I'm here with my brother Jason. We're both certified financial planners from Fowler's Group, and in this episode, we'll be talking superannuation and tips to take on board to have a better understanding of your super. Almost everyone listening to this should have a super fund but unfortunately, not all super funds are equal. Today, we're gonna focus on the key things that you should understand about your own fund, and it'll also help you compare your fund with another. So make sure you stay tuned to get all five. Okay, Jason. So this is the rapid fire five, so you're gonna be put on the mantelpiece here, right? Oh, you beauty. I'm gonna place you on. So we've got five to go. Well, let's fire away the first one. We may as well start with returns, because that's, oh, that's all everyone cares about. But more than that, let's just, talk a little bit about the, I guess, our industry lingo, because it can, on face value, it all looks the same. Um, but if I've got a, uh, a super fund and I'm invested in a, a balanced fund and I get a 7% return, and then I'm comparing it to a super fund B down the road that's given me a 9% return, that should be fair reason for me to say, hey, that's a little bit better. I should flip over and, and go to their balanced fund because they do it better. Would that be right? In yeah. comparison, one would, right. one would think so, right? Because balanced is balanced, right? You stand on a seesaw, it's balanced. But unfortunately, balanced doesn't mean balance. It's not apples and it's not, you know, we're comparing sometimes apples and oranges. And I think it's more important to understand when it comes to returns, returns are driven by how your fund is investment allocated, right? Asset yep. allocation. And unfortunately, a balanced fund can be anything from having half of its assets in defensive assets and half of it in growth to having 85% of it in growth and only 15% in defensive. And what we know about investing is that generally over a long period of time, growth and defensive assets have different bases of return. Yep. They have different volatility. And just because I got 7% this year and my mate got 9% down the road and we're both in a balanced fund, chances are the asset allocation is very different. So it's really important not to go by the words but to go by the really pretty pie chart that goes on most people's statement. So we all get our statement at the end of there. It tells us what we've got, what our fund is, and what our asset allocation is. And if we're truly going to compare our fund to our mate's fund, chances are they have to have a similar asset allocation or return comparisons are a waste of time. Because the other the other thing I've noticed um, with, with clients that have come in, you've got that asset allocation, but it can be so varying, can't it? So a, a fund can say, hey, look, we've got a balanced fund. Yeah, we, we put 70% in growth assets and 30% in defensive assets. But if we want to, we can actually put 85% in growth and 15% in defense. So they can actually vary it themselves, can't they, at any point in time? Absolutely correct. So the statement gives us that point in time, but unfortunately that PDS, that thing that we always get given yep. and no bugger reads, unfortunately, which has all the detail is what gives the investment philosophy of each of those investment options. And unlike the way we manage money where we're where we're sticking to an asset allocation and managing around relatively tight thresholds, most super funds, the big super funds, have massive ability to vary that over a period of time. And so it's important to understand that when you're actually comparing returns. So, so understand what the asset allocation as opposed to what the name of the fund is. Absolutely correct. Your comparison. Tick okay, one. Okay, tick one, done. Okay, the next one on everyone's uh, mind or the one we see is costs. So um, we deal with a... Uh, I've got my super fund with one of those one of those funds where you put your hands together and you create a nice little little yep. symbol. Very cheap um, compared to a to another fund that that shows their their costs. So for one thing, how do we do the cost comparison? And two is cheaper cost is that better? Okay, fair enough. So we've all seen the escalator ads or the elevator ads, and 
the the difference there is cost is not cost. <laughs> Sounds like an, an oxymoron, but what is being dis, what is disclosed on your super statement? So the the beauty of what's changed in recent times is that there was a mandate that super funds not only had to give you what you started with, what you got, what went in, what fees, what taxes came out, but they had to total the cost that you paid so that in theory one member could pick up one statement and compare it to another fund and see that in a dollar terms. The problem with is you only had to disclose explicit costs, so costs that really were affected. So a lot of the bigger funds, this is the sad part, a lot of the bigger funds are able to over a long period of time have been able to hide some of their costs inside salaries and other bits and pieces. And if you gain that lovely thing called a product disclosure statement, yep. if you actually go and read them, which, you know, Wade here loves doing and Ben and they pull these things apart, when you actually look at the explicit cost, but you add in the implicit cost, those costs that we know are getting paid but are hidden in the unit price, and we actually break those out, quite often the cost of a fund can go from points that we did one the other day for a client went from 0.5% to 1.1%. So 0.6% difference. Yeah, doubled wow. overnight, right? Okay. And it's just the difference because of the because not every that implicit cost doesn't happen mm. in every option. So depending on what investment options and unfortunately, a lot of the default options which we'll get to in a minute have a lot of a, you know, generally speaking have higher implicit costs. That's something to be really. So it's understanding what your actual costs are and and you need to do some analysis, and unfortunately, Joe Average on the yeah, end of this conversation. I was going to say, how does Joe Average do that? That very difficult. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things we get advice. That's why, you know, if this was easy, you know, everyone would yeah. do it, right? So it's something to understand, um, and and it really changes from fund to fund. So, but it's really important. Asset allocation is the most important. Understanding cost, and then making sure that both of those are suited to your needs. Yep. Okay. So. Rapid fire question number three. You're going all right at the moment. Oh, right? that's good. I'm glad. Bad. Okay, let's talk insurance benefits, um, and I guess getting to understand what you're actually covered for. Most people do have insurance these days through super funds. You're actually given it um, in lots of a, cases. A, a yeah, level of life insurance or, or total and permanent disability, and sometimes income protection as well. So, um, how do you compare the insurance benefit, or what are the what are the things to consider when you do have insurance cover that actually is through your, your super fund? And I think that the biggest thing there is most people who've got um, cover through an, an, a superannuation fund, they generally have got it on the basis of your ticker box or it's a default level of cover. So they haven't had to be underwritten. They yep. haven't had to either. They've been saying once or two questions. In the old days, it used to be, are you were you at work the day that you started? Yep. And then you, you got a letter level of cover. So if a lot, a lot of questions have been have been answered, then the insurance company or the fund doesn't know a lot about you, so they just pull you in with everyone else. And the way they get around that is that they have this thing called a pre-existing condition exclusion. So it basically says that if you're aware of something at the point at which they gave you cover that they didn't know about, then there's a chance they can deny the claim at the end. Hmm. So we just had a client that we saw in the last week or so who had a very high history of – the partner had a very high history of – Cholesterol, which we know as an in, as a, as an advisor, generally has an impact on insurance premiums, particularly yep. if it's been growing over time and it can't be controlled. So we're doing some analysis for them to see whether the existing terms in the contract of the fund that they have means they're going to get cover because it may be that they've been paying for something that they were mm-hmm. never going to be able to claim on. So whilst it's important that you have insurance, right, and we're big believers in it, 
it's really important that you understand whether that insurance is worth the paper that it's written on. Yep. Another, another quick example is that often, particularly people who are self-employed, if they get income protection through a super fund um, at, that it's of a level where they haven't got any underwriting for it, generally they have uh, a clause about ongoing business income. And so the benefit is reduced by the amount of profit that the company would continue to make if that person... And it's generally worded in such a way if you have an ownership directly or associated in that business, then they will write that back irrespective. And so there's a couple of clients we've seen in previous to- in, in recent times have had income cover inside a super fund but have been direct owners of a business and because of the you know the terms, it's just cover they're not going to get paid. Yep. I, I, would, I would even go as far as suggest if you are self-employed and you, or you own your own business um, and you have cover through superannuation, that has not you been underwritten. seriously need to get it um, looked at and, yep. and, and assessed. I think that's really important. The other, the other one, total and permanent disability, if we just touch yep. on that, because I, I remember a story with uh, one of the insurers, that retail insurers that we, we deal with, and a lot of the retail insurers actually provide group insurance to all the large uh, superannuation funds, Australian Super, Sun Super, yep. what are they called now, Australian Retirement Trust Super or yeah, Trust yeah, or whatever it's just happened. Um, so every three or so years, these large super funds tender out the, the insurance benefits. So it changes. So it changes. Change. So it yeah. can change from provider to provider depending on, on how that, the tender process works. And, and what happens is, uh, and what we were told from the particular insurers with total and permanent disability is to try and win the tender to, to, to be the group insurer for a particular super fund, you've obviously got to be priced right. And the only way they can price right from total and permanent... Because death cover, you're either dead yeah. or you're alive, right? Yeah. So you it's can't easy. really price anything other than that. But total and permanent disability cover, you can just start altering your definition, taking bits out, which means you can essentially reduce the price. So because you you're be reducing the, group the amount of opportunities for client. Yep. So it's amazing. So there's vast differences with, with, with within that. Okay, so that's a can of worms that you've opened up for everyone. Yeah. That's, All right. that's that could be one. another episode just on insurance, right? <laughs> um, okay, so number four, rapid fire tip, estate planning. Let's just talk estate planning. Let's talk beneficiary nominations yep. within Superfund, which is the best nomination to go. Who who can you nominate as a beneficiary? What to look out for? Um if you how the benefits are paid, yep, um, okay. that's in, that's important as well. I've asked actually a lot of questions. You have asked a lot of questions. Let's, let's, just, start bang, bang, bang. let's right. just start with beneficiary nominations. So on your everybody's super fund on their statement they get every year, and a lot of this stuff here we're referring back to the statement, so it's important you actually pick them out and read them. It will say generally if you die, this is where the where the money will go is be class beneficiary nomination. Now traditionally for a long period of time, super funds worked on what we call a trustee discretion. So it's a uh, it's like a benefit promise, right? You would mm-hmm. say, in theory, um, this is who I would like the money to go to, and it could potentially be anybody, but the trustee was not bound by your decision. They they would look at your will, they would look at intestacy, they would look at a whole bunch of things to make a determination of who would get the money. So it was not mm-hmm. a guarantee, all right? And lots of people, particularly young people, um, before they've partnered, before they've got kids and married, often put their mum and dad down. Yep. All right? And unfortunately, that's not a likely outcome as a payment or it's a long, prolonged process. We had a client for a long time who had fought with a trustee of a 
uh, of, a, of, of a large industry fund about getting the money and the benefit because they died without a will and yeah. they only had a trustee discretion benefit. And it, you know, it didn't end up going where it was, where the, the son had intended the money to go. Okay. So a lot of people go, oh, okay, that's cool. We understand that now. And, and so there's things called binding death nominations, which are actually, as they say, they are binding on the trustee as to who will get the money if something happens. So there's no questions asked? You would think so. <laughs> but unlike most things, they can only be binding on a person who is a dependent under superannuation legislation. Okay. And so as long as you name somebody who meets the criteria of a dependent under super legislation, which is a spouse, mm-hmm. an ex-spouse, because an ex-spouse is still a spouse, a child, or somebody who is financially dependent on you can be a beneficiary. So if someone leaves a nomination that is binding, again, they're young and they leave it to their parents who are unlikely to be financially dependent on them, then it's not binding that it gets paid. So, so you what, can what only would happen, make what would happen in that case? It reverts to trustee discretion. Okay. Yep. And it goes so through the trustee hands. process. So it's out of your hands. So, so it's so important that if you are going to do binding, <laughs> that you actually make sure you make it binding to somebody who is able to be a dependent under super legislation. And the important part with a binding nomination is like a will. It also has to be witnessed and it mm-hmm. has to be witnessed generally by two people who are not named on the nomination and are over 18. So the only other thing that we see occasionally that means these things fall over is because people haven't met the witnessing criteria just as you have to meet a witnessing criteria on a will. So so, so once you've done it, once you've made your binding nomination, that's it, it's done it, you, you don't have to change it ever again or what happens there? You would think so. <laughs> <laughs> there are two types of binding nominations. There's the more common one, which is a, what's called a lapsing binding nomination and depending on the fund will expire every two or every three years. Mm-hmm. So it's binding for as long as it's inside the period it was executed. So yep. once it gets past that, if you don't redo that nomination then it becomes a trustee discretion again. Now, generally, if you have a lapsing binding nomination, it will say on your Superfund statement when it was entered into and therefore when it will expire. But there are funds out there now that offer what's called a non-lapsing binding death benefit nomination, which means as long as you meet the criteria of you've given it to someone who is a dependent, you've witnessed it correctly, you never have to touch it again unless you want to change your mind. And they're absolutely the best style of benefit. There's no doubt. Okay. Right. Well, this is uh, part B. D. Part D, D of question question four. So we've, we've made the, the nomination. Something happens. I've made a nomination to, to, to my spouse. I croak. Um, Lane's and, happy. And, we're all having a party. Well, she'll be happy. All right. Don't <laughs> worry. She'll grieve for a minute. Um, but we, so what happens there? She just gets the lump sum that, I, that I've got in my super or any insurance benefits in that just goes straight to her. Is that the best way for her to receive that? Or, or how? How do you get the money out? Or how does it this. come? I'm going to say this. It depends. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> so realistically, there's there's generally two ways that money can can be paid out of a uh, out of a super fund. It can come as a lump sum, yep. which means that as long as you've met the criteria of all the things we just talked about before, then this money comes out of superannuation is paid to the person who is the beneficiary or the series of people that are beneficiaries because it doesn't have to be one. It could be different percentages to different people and it comes out and it goes in the bank account and generally if it's under a binding and therefore there are nom- uh, there are dependent, it's generally going to be tax-free. There's yep. some sports sp- but generally going to be tax-free to them. Um, so it can come out the which is fantastic because if if you if you need the cash out that's that's great and I'll, but unfortunately for lots of super funds that's the only method yep. that's there 
right? But super law allows, as long as the trust deed of the fund allows, for the beneficiary to choose to take that money as a pension out of super rather than as a lump sum. Okay. And then you can see you looking, well, people go, well, why would I do that? Yep. The reason that you would potentially do that is because if you meet, there's specified people that can get this, generally spouses and younger kids, dependent kids under the age of 18, then the money stays within the superannuation environment, which is has a lot less tax on it potentially. So if you've got a, generally people got insurance in their super fund. So even if they've got a small balance, they yep. might have a large insurance. And so let's say there's a million dollars in this fund. If I take a million dollars and I invest it in my own name, I'm going to probably pay some personal tax on it. But if if Lane, in this particular case, was choose to take that money rather than a lump time take as an, a pension, same as I would in retirement, mm-hmm. then generally that money will be in a tax-favoured environment and, and potentially grow, but she has to take the money out and that money comes out, depending on her age, either tax-free if she's old enough or with a credit, a bit like a franking credit. And so yep. it's a really tax-effective way of planning that. So, so she can get an ongoing income via that? Absolutely, which is what most people possibly, want. But can, she can also access Correct. large lump sums if, if need be. Yeah, so you sort and of get the best of both worlds. Correct. So you have the opportunity of either or or combination thereof. And yeah, all really funds offer of this, don't they? No. <laughs> As I said in the beginning, it comes down to the fund deed and it's really why taking advice and understanding, you know, that all funds aren't equal – for some people, that's really important. And we're finding for lots of people, as their balances grow, it becomes really important, particularly when the limits on putting money into super funds means yep. like, you know, once upon a time I could get the lump sum out, I could turn around, I could put it back into super if that's what I chose. Yep. But in another episode where we talk about superannuation, there's now limits to doing that. So you can't just freely go and stick a million dollars into super tomorrow because you think it's a good idea. And that's why it's important to take advice. Right, yeah. Okay, that's part four that went quite long but it was a it, it was, was rapid a good fire. question but we're going to get off this morbid stuff we've spoken about insurance and and death benefits and uh me dying um number Better five the me. last one which is an important one as well this is almost as good as uh returns but investment choice what do you do um what decision do you make when you take out a uh when you start with an employer you start with a fund you, the money's just there being invested how, how does it get invested in and what happens there? What, do, you, do you get to make a choice or does the government make the choice? Who makes the choice or the employer? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Uh, lots of people don't know the answer to that. Mm. So every super fund, um, particularly those that we get from an employer generally, have to meet the criteria of the my super legislation, which means that there's a default choice. Mm-hmm. And indirectly, the government has determined what that is, right? So they've put some requirements around these funds that they must meet certain requirements and they must change generally in perception is that your asset allocation, we spoke about that at the beginning, yep. understanding what that is, there's a, there's an, a belief that your people's asset allocation should change. So they should get less risky as they get older. Now, we've been doing this a long time mm-hmm. and we know that that's probably not the greatest thing that can happen for most people. If you've got enough money and it's planned correctly and you've got enough assets to fund the cash flow that you need, then you generally don't need to change your asset allocation. But most default investment choices, particularly under my super, have what we call like a life cycle stage, which means as I get older, generally in five or 10 year bands, my asset allocation will change because the super fund only knows a couple of things about me. They know my name, they know where I live, they know how old I am, and indirectly they know how much I earn because they can, you can mathematically work back from what's going in, right? And so they're building investment choices based on the average of that for all members. So if you take no choice, then you are getting what the trustees, either 
you got a my super option or the other default option is you're getting what the trustees believe is in the best interest of all the members based on the average of all of those pieces of information. Okay. So when we're young and we're, we're early into super and we don't have a lot and generally that's really a, a good option, right? Because generally we look a lot like the average member in the fund. Mm-hmm. And so we're getting a reasonable. Now, as we go through life and um, maybe our circumstances change at a different rate to the average member or maybe um, I'm, a, I'm a member of uh, whatever the, the – I'll call it industry super. Say, say I, I can't even remember what they're called. They, it's been so complicated. They've changed all their names of late time. But retirement, right? Mm-hmm. Which has got lots and lots of funds that have now pooled together. Once upon a time, if I was in the say the MTAA fund, generally I worked in the motor vehicle yep. industry, right? Yep. But if I was someone who sold Lexuses for a living and was very good at it, I probably got paid a little bit differently to the bloke who fixed the Lexus in the mm-hmm. service station because of. Well, for no other reason, that's just the way the world the way worked, yep. right? And so if we were both the same age, we actually have potentially very different investment balances and we may not be best that we're both in the same fund. Mm. And so it's important as we develop over time to actually make sure that our investment choices within super, just like any other investment, match our needs and are met. And that's when we really need to start thinking about having personal – because everyone can take a personal choice, you know? My son, there, who's about there, to start, a, yeah. you know, finish physiotherapy, hopefully, and off my hands in uh, financially to some extent by the end of the year, he'll go and get a job. Um, he'll start to earn, but he could make a choice. He can have the default option, but he could choose that he wanted to just have all his money in uh, in growth assets and very mm-hmm. little intensive. And once he makes that choice, that choice sticks unless he changes fund or unless he makes another choice. So you yeah. don't have to be in the default. You can take advice from someone, you can figure that out and you can make a choice and it will then go or you, for most people, that default choice to begin with is probably okay. But over time we so should at what sort of is there is there a specific balance you think for say people are starting out, right? You're gonna as you said, you're gonna be in the um, fund, you're gonna be invested uh, more aggressively, which you should be because there's a, a long time frame to you're gonna access it. Is there a is there a certain uh, account balance that you need to start considering more options or it's it's really to, to do with your full finance planning, I guess, going forward? I think it's and to make do sure with, it matches in there. Yeah, I think it's to do with planning. I mean, mm. there's some legislation that says that up to a certain balance, fees can't be charged and you and, and a lot of funds don't offer choice yep. outside the default right up to about five or $6,000 or wherever that crossover is. But realistically, once you're able to take choice, then there's no reason not to start mm-hmm. then um, and, and start building it, yep. building it up. Unfortunately, most people don't actually pay any notice. My rough rule of thumb is when it gets around about $100,000, people seem to be concerned by what the balance is this year versus last year or the year before, right? But realistically, if they'd actually taken a bit of interest a bit earlier and had something tailored, maybe we'd have got to the $100,000 a bit quicker. Okay. So so the thing there is to understand that you do have choice Mm -hmm. and and it's worth considering. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so... I think you've pretty much nailed that. Five oh. questions, you did that pretty well. Jeez, I will give you a wrap. I don't often do that. No, you don't do that very often. Um, but but in finish, I think most most Aussies have, have superannuation, and, and essentially, it's going to be probably one of their largest assets Absolutely. going forward through life. There's no doubt about that. Um, so it actually is worthwhile taking the time to understand what it is you have, um, and make sure that it grows, so you can be sure that the fund meets your your needs um, going forward. Uh, and if you're not sure that it actually does. It is worthwhile picking up the phone and, and maybe getting some advice around that. Absolutely. Well. And particularly if you can be in a fund, most funds now are portable. So you can mm. go 
you don't have to be in a fund just because the employer says you have to be in the fund. Most people have choice. And if you get the right fund, you can carry it with you through life rather than have a dozen other ones. Yep. Well, that wraps up today. Well done, Jason. Rapid Thanks, five, Paul. five. You passed. Chance. Excellent. Well, we'll see what, we, what topics we can fire at you next time. So as usual, please head to the Wealth Radar Facebook page. Let us know about your thoughts on today's chat. Suggest ideas for things you want, want us to talk about in the future. You know, be like Paul, say nice things about me would be really good. Make sure you like the page so you don't miss our episode. Thanks for listening and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Cheers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and the information contained is of a general nature and may not be relevant to your particular circumstances. The circumstances of each investor are different and you should seek advice from a professional financial advisor who can consider if particular strategies and products are right for you. In all instances where information is based on historical performance, it is important to understand this is not a reliable indicator of future performance. You should not rely on any material on this podcast to make investment decisions and should seek professional advice. Fowler's Group ABN 5710524484 is an authorised representative number 230575 and credit representative number 403265 of FYG Planners Propriety Limited ABN 5509497254040 Australian Financial Services and Credit Licence Number 224543.